just a reminder to you, you know, we've been going through um, healthy church, what a healthy church is, and for a lot of different reasons. And one is because it's what scripture teaches us, and it's something that I think we, we've, in some ways, not just us, but Christians in general, we've, we've forgotten. We, if somebody asked you what's a healthy church, so a lot of people would be hard-pressed to be able to define it. So that's, that's, one, that's one of the reasons that, that, we're doing, that we're doing this. And I, um, the other reason is, as I've told you before, it's what I believe God called me here, and I think it's why God has called you and kept you here, that we would be a healthy church, that we would know what a healthy church is, and that we would, we would do everything that we can, trusting that his spirit will help us. And I just remind you, um, if for whatever reason you've missed some of these sermons, they go all the way back to uh, October now, um, invite you, go listen to them again. If you want to know at least the direction of what Wildlife Baptist Church is headed in, I invite you to go listen to them. If, if you want to know who many of us aspire to be as a church, go listen. If you want to know how so many are already working in this way to become this kind of church, I invite you uh, to go listen. There's so many things out there about how churches um, develop and how they grow and how you measure them. And as I've said, I've, I'm not interested in, in big unless big is healthy. And it's not always the case. I'm not interested in small either, unless small is healthy. Interested in healthy. And so that's what I, I hope is, is something that all of us um, desire. Well, we're getting near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've been talking about, it's Jesus talking about his disciples, how disciples live, what they think about, what they do. He's, he's really talking about what it means to be in the kingdom. And for us, it's talking about how we as disciples work with one another. And now he's coming near the end, and he's made these different summary statements. And you know, last, year, or last week, we talked about the golden rule and, and that, that summary statement and, and how the golden rule is not what most of us think that it means. It isn't just treat others the way you want to be treated. That's, that's the world's interpretation of the golden rule. So we talked last week that that's really not what it's about. It's about something different. And this week, we get this other passage of, that's often taken out of the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount, it's kingdom-focused. It's all about the kingdom. And people misunderstand it because it seems like a really good teaching that can be self-contained. But we should never do that with Scripture. If we don't have context, we really don't know anything. We just have words. So we need to understand context. And we've, those of you who've been here and following along, I hope that you've, you've heard the context here. But the question I want to ask is a um, semi-serious question, especially if, um, if you uh, have young children, but, or you're about to have young children. Um, what is the color parents stop wearing once they have kids? White, right? White. When you have baby, you stop wearing white. Why? Because unlike other colors, one little thing, one little stain, one little baby upchuck, and all of a sudden, it shows up on the white. So you stop wearing white, 
And if you do wear white, you're always like kind of paranoid. Like if you carry the baby, you carry the baby like this, right? You, you stay away from things because, because you don't want to see anything, anything, even the slightest mark becomes a problem. And again, it leads us to avoiding white. Let me tell you something that we as a church need to protect the way we would protect something that's white. And that is truth. We need to protect truth. We are people of truth. We are, we are guardians of truth. We are, we are communicators of truth. And we're in a world that where, where truth has become so relative. Truth has become whatever you decide is truth, is truth. Truth has become something where, where we, we accept the words, but we allow people to reinterpret all the words so that it doesn't even mean the same thing anymore. Every church, every church for 2,000 years, if it's a healthy church or aspires to be a healthy church, it is a church that's built on truth, which means one of the greatest threats to the church that the church constantly faces is false teaching. False teaching. Let me help you understand a little bit more about that. Jesus is going to talk about a specific kind of false teacher, but there's different kinds of false teachers. You know, there's false teachers who do things because they're trying their best, and their best just isn't good enough. And they're trying to speak truth. They're trying to read the Bible. They're trying to understand it. But maybe they just don't pay attention to context. And maybe it just comes down to their personal interpretation of Scripture. And so it really just becomes their own values. And they, they kind of take their values and run them through the Bible and, and express them to you. And it's wrong. It's false teaching. Um, a lot of times they get it right. You know, it's okay, you know, it's maybe not what that Bible verse was talking about, but, but overall they're, they're within the realm of what Christians believe. But sometimes they get it wrong. And sometimes they get it wrong and it's kind of scary because there are certain false teachings that are very attractive to us. And when we hear them, we become attracted to them and we want to hear them, we want to hear more. And then it becomes, it takes on a life of its own. Because now I feel like I have power because I'm giving you a false teaching, but it's something you want to hear. And so you're telling me, oh, that was great. Let's hear more. And you're telling your friends, and then maybe we get a, a huge church, people that are attracted by this, this false teaching. And the, the person who's the leader, the person who's the teacher, doesn't even, under, doesn't even realize it. They don't realize it because they were sincere. They were looking at the word. They were trying their best. There's that kind of false teaching. We need to guard against that. But there's other kind of false, false teaching too. There's other kind of false teaching that comes about because someone is intentionally doing it. They're doing it for whatever reason. Maybe it's so that you know, they can gain power. Or maybe they're doing it because they believe that they have found a greater truth than the truth that's found in the Word of God. And so they're going to bring their greater truth to still hold on to the Bible, but they really 
believe their, their idea of truth is more important than the Bible. And anytime there's a contradiction, they're either going to reinterpret the Bible, ignore the Bible, or just reject what the Bible says altogether. Doesn't matter the reason. False teaching is false teaching. I think most of us are probably in danger of the first one. You know, we mean well, we're doing our best, and, but we just aren't rightly handling the Word of God. I'm pretty sure, and I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, nobody could record my sermons. Because I'm pretty sure there's some pretty bad ones. And I'm pretty sure bad, not in the sense of whether they were entertaining or not, but bad in the sense that I was giving a wrong teaching. And so we should guard. We should guard that if we're teachers, we should guard against that. And how do you guard against it? You guard against it by, by preparing, by putting in the proper time. If ever you're teaching God's word, I don't care whether it's to, to preschoolers, I don't care if it's to adults, I don't care if it's something super advanced or something really basic. Anytime you're communi- communicating God's word, you are speaking for God. Don't you think you'd be really careful about what comes out of your mouth? Don't you think you would, you, would, you would prepare as much as you could? In fact, learn how to prepare even more. We've taken kind of a casual attitude toward truth in how we often do teaching. And this isn't just small churches, big churches too. You know, a lot of, uh, when I was in, in in uh, Texas, and I was teaching, and I, you know, I had students from all different churches, big and small, and one of my students um, came to me and said, you know, um, the pastor, they've invited me to become one of the, like, home church leaders, small group leaders, in a home fellowship. I said, okay, and this was a huge church. If I said the name, you'd know it. I said, when you go to the orientation tonight, ask them this. Is there going to be any ongoing education and training and is there any sense of like mentorship or accountability? He goes, okay. He had, he had known me enough. He, he knew exactly why I was asking it. So he came and he, he, he came back the next week and he said, nope, none of it. They pretty much say, you want to do it? Great. Set you up. Go do it. That orientation at the beginning, that was it. I was like, I told him, you don't need to be doing this. Who's protecting you from yourself? What other profession? If you go to any other profession, I remember when my brother uh, became a surgeon. And so I was talking to him, and he's like, oh, I got to keep going to these uh, continuing education things. I got to keep going to professional development. There's all these other professions and fields where you have to keep going. But for some reason, teaching in the church, ah, as soon as you sign up, just go. Do it. Are we really protecting truth? Are we being careful with truth? It should be something that I think we care about that it's not just something we kind of get, but we deeply care about. It doesn't mean everybody has to be a scholar, and it doesn't mean everybody has to be an expert. But it means that all of us 
should only want to speak when we speak what God's Word says, should only want to speak what God's Word says. When I went to um, UH, I, I, I became a journalism major, and, you know, I took a class on, um, on news writing, and then we had to take, like, the class that kind of was the gate class. If you didn't pass this class, you couldn't go on in journalism, and it was news editing. And the professor was this really, like, sharp, you know, grammarian, editor, all of this stuff. And I remember when I first learned grammar, when I first really learned English grammar, I had this sense of paranoia. And the paranoia was, I don't want to make mistakes. And so if I couldn't remember the rule, I would just rewrite the sentence so I could avoid the rule altogether. It's not the easiest thing to do because, you know, a lot of times you're just, you know, the best way to say it was the way you were going to say it. But I would do that because, because I didn't really understand grammar yet. I knew the rules, but I didn't really understand it. And so there was, a, there, was a, there was a initial paranoia, but I'm glad I went through that phase. I'm glad I went through learning and then this kind of fear of using and, and, and continuing on to use it because eventually all of that became more second nature. And I had much more freedom to write and to write in a way that I knew was at least clear grammatically. But a lot of times when we, when we do teaching ministry in the church, you know, we want to just stay here and say, I don't really want to know. I just want to assume I know. Because we don't want to go through that phase of being kind of paranoid and always wondering, am I saying it right? Am I getting it wrong? We don't want to go through that. We don't want to go through that, you know, we've gotten the essentials and the basics. And so we don't. We just either stay here or we drop out all completely. We all got to go through that process. I freely admitted to you, uh, maybe not even 20 years ago, maybe, I, I, maybe I'm exagger uh, not exaggerating, maybe it was five years ago. I hope it wasn't four years, because I've been here for four years. I hope everything I've told you is truth. But, but I'm telling you, I, I've gone through the same process. Am I getting it right? Am I speaking truth? You see, that's the problem the world has today. The world has this problem, and, and social media did not create the problem. Social media just made the problem more abundant, where people are very overconfident in things they know nothing about. They're overconfident in, in, in their, what they think they know. You got people, you know, spouting off on international politics. They were spouting off on the economy. They don't even know. They have no clue what this stuff is about. And yet, they got an opinion. And that's kind of the, the mark of our age of people that are overconfident in what they think they know. Well, that affects us in the church, too. A lot of people become so confident in what they think they know that they don't think they need to know anything else. Let me tell you, one of, the, one of the symptoms, the signs that says the door is opening to false teaching is when we become overconfident 
overconfident in what we think we know to the point that we don't think we need to know anything else. Because when we don't think we know, need to know anything else, we have committed the biggest, the biggest sin. Because we are saying, we know God. We are saying, this infinite God, the one who created all things, the one who's so transcendent and holy and above us, the one that, that, that we cannot even begin to fathom, we are saying instead, oh no, I got it. I know God. If we're going to protect truth, we need to begin by being humble and saying, yeah, I might know something. I might know something, but I don't know nearly what I need to know. I told you guys last week, I guess this has been confessions of a professor pastor. You know, I told you last week that when I was first asked to teach a Greek class, I'd never taught Greek before. I hadn't even looked at my Greek seriously for about three or four years. And so my whole goal was to stay a week ahead of my students. That was my goal. Because as long as I was a week ahead, they were beginners, they, must, they thought I was smart. They thought I knew everything, right? But if I had kept that mentality, I would have never developed as a Greek teacher. I developed as a Greek teacher because it wasn't enough just to go into crisis mode right there and to continue on for the next nine years. Instead it was, I gotta know this stuff. I need to study this stuff. I need to understand it. I wasn't overconfident in the least. I was kind of scared sometimes. You know, you always got that one student who comes in who shouldn't be in your class because they've studied before. Fortunately, I never had that student, but you always fear that student's gonna come in because they're gonna expose you for the fraud that you are, right? Fortunately, by the time I had better students, I was a better teacher. But we become so overconfident that we don't think we need to know anymore. Or maybe we don't say it that way. We don't think anybody can teach us anymore. It's a very common thing among, um, in case, you know, I don't want to burst your bubble. But if you think, you know, young pastors who are called to Christ are very Christ-like and humble all the time, just let you know. A lot of the students in seminary, they don't believe anybody can teach them anything, or they pick the one or two people, and that's the only people that can teach them. They'll go to chapel and don't need to learn. I used to do this in chapel. Um, I think students started to be afraid of me, but I would always sit up in the balcony, and I would look for students. Remember, all these students want to be pastors, missionaries, worship leaders, they're all committed, right? Be up there. There's somebody over there playing a game on their phone. Sometimes I'd wait till after the service. Sometimes I'd just go and sit down next to them during the service. I'd say, are you listening to God's word today? After the service, I might ask them, why, why are you at seminary? Oh, so was, was the person speaking today not not really speaking God's word. 
course, it led to some very uncomfortable for them. Not for me, I enjoy it uncomfortable. Um, awkward moments. And some of them would come up later on and say, you know what, thank you. I have a bad attitude towards learning. I'm 21 years old and I think I know everything. I know more than everybody here. I'm only here to get a degree so that churches will hire me. Overconfidence. And think about that. These are the guys going to seminary. Well, told you the danger. Let's look at what Jesus says. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus is, again, giving the caution. He's talked to his, these, these followers. There's probably tens of thousands of people listening to him on this, during this sermon. And he's talked to them about what it means to be his followers. And he's talked about them you know, being together. But then he says, but there's these false teachers. Kind of summarizing here. One of the things you need to watch for is false teachers. And see... The reason healthy churches are constantly threatened by false teachers is because, remember the definition of healthy churches. Healthy churches are communities of disciples. And what are disciples? Disciples are students. Disciples are trying to learn more. You see, if a healthy church was not a, a community of students, if we were a community of people who already knew everything, we wouldn't be at risk from false teachers. Because if a false teacher came in, we'd immediately recognize them and say, no, not right. If, if, even if we felt like we didn't have it all, but we, we had enough, it would be safe. Because anybody that wants to say anything outside the enough, we, we don't listen to them. But a healthy church is a community of disciples, people hungering, seeking truth, seeking the kingdom, seeking righteousness, wanting to know more, constantly recognizing before God they know so little and so their whole lives are just spent on seeking truth. That's a great thing. But it also makes you vulnerable to false teaching. That kind of community is going to listen. They're going to try to understand. They're going to try to discern truth. Because they realize that, that, that if all they're going to say is, we, we got it all, then, then they're going to stop developing. They're going to stop growing. They have to listen to other voices. And so sometimes there's these false teachers. See, that's why in the healthy church you have the whole range you have the people who are, who are new and growing in their faith and people that have been there for a while. And then you have the ones who've been called to be the, the leaders and the teachers and all. And that, that, that healthy community together, you know, helps. Because then if you say like, oh, you know, I was listening on the radio. This guy said something I never heard before. 
you can talk about it in the community of faith. Oh, you know, there's, there's this new book that's come out. You can talk about it in a community of faith. And you know what a healthy community of faith is going to do? It's not going to say, well, we think this or we think that. A healthy community of faith is going to start to, under, start to ask, how does this fit with what the Bible teaches? How does this fit with the truth that we know? But there's that constant threat. And if something is new, it's, it's difficult. You see... A false teacher rarely just comes up with something brand new. Like if someone came into the church today and said, um, this is what I believe God told me. God told me that um, the Bible, it's outdated. Just put it on the side. I got this new book that I wrote. And uh, I wrote it because God told me to. And it says, uh, step one to holiness is give me all your money. Right? I mean... That's so far from the Bible. But see, a false teacher isn't like that. A false teacher starts on the path and then intentionally or unintentionally diverts. And so if you're just walking along, not thinking, if you're just walking along following, not being like the Bereans who are searching the scripture and knowing God's word, if you're just walking along, it's easy for you just to keep following. And there you are off on a false path. There's usually this, this fork in the road. And it's hard to know. If you've ever been uh, in walking trails in the, in the mountains around here, sometimes it's hard to know which one of the paths is the main path and which one is broken off until you take the one that's broken off and you know, somewhere along the way you realize, hmm, this isn't right. But he says they're inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. What is he talking about there? You know, it's a great picture, but I think the picture we get is kind of wrong. We think like, you know, they're, you know, Little Red Riding Hood, wolf dressed up like grandma. That's what they're like, okay? Got those fangs. So if we just look closely enough, we can tell. Like if you look closely enough at me, maybe you can see I'm actually a wolf. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think what he's talking about is, he says inwardly. And, he's, and it's getting back to this idea of he's using, uh, he's used several like animal images. And, and the question is, is like, what is he talking about inwardly, the ravenous wolves? And, and the, the point that he's, I think, trying to make here is he's saying the focus is on, is on their needs, their lust their desire for power. That's why they're teaching. He's talking specifically about those false prophets. He's not talking about the unintentional false prophet, the, the person who just got it wrong, they meant well, they tried, but they just interpreted the scripture wrong. He's talking about the ones who come in and see that what they're teaching, whether they know it or not, what they're teaching is somehow building themselves for themselves. He says, those are the ones you got to watch for. Because it's not just false teaching. They're using false teaching to gain your trust. And see, a really good false teacher 
you don't recognize it, they got your trust. You're going to follow them. And maybe there'll be crowds. Because again, what false teachers are really good at is they're good at figuring out what you want to hear and telling you what you want to hear. Oh, it may sound like what you need to hear, but they're telling you what you want to hear. They may even use some of the same Bible language. You know, anybody who says in Scripture, if they use Scripture and they say that if you do X, God has to do Y, it's a false teacher. A false teacher. That's someone who's trying to give you a formula, trying to tell you something so that, so that you will then go, oh, that's awesome. You've made life so simple for me. But we like that. It's like I have some control. I just got to pray this certain prayer. I just got to pray it a certain way. I just got to do certain things. And if I do, then somehow God has to respond in a certain way. Sounds kind of true, but it's not. It's this inwardly ravenous wolves. You may not ever see it, but they know how to say things because it builds their, themselves. And it's really hard because, because how do you know if, a, if just from looking from the outside, how do you know? How do you know whether, whether a pastor is speaking truth to you or a pastor is only saying the things that, that, that he thinks you want to hear so that you'll come and you'll keep bringing people? And then that builds his own reputation, his own power. How do you know? It's hard. But it's made a lot easier if we're disciples of the word. It's a lot easier if we know God's word, if we're students of the word, that if we're constantly seeking his word. And it's made a lot easier if we're truly a community. You see, when we're really a community of faith, when we're really a community of disciples bound by his spirit, then you know what? Then you know my heart, and I know your heart. You don't just hear what I say on a Sunday morning. But you know what motivates me. And I know what motivates you. Because we know one another. We're connected. But see, that's really hard in, in our culture today. You know, we were talking about this in Sunday school today, that in our culture, we've kind of accepted this compromise. We all come to, to church services and, you know, we sit shoulder to shoulder and look at, look at the guy up there. And we do a little bit of interaction. But we really don't develop deep relationships. I think I shared with you that there was, I shared this with the deacons, that they've done these studies that if you want to develop a deep friendship, a deep relationship with someone, it takes 200 hours of interaction. Do the math. If all you do is come to Sunday morning worship, if that's all you do, 
and maybe you interact with somebody for five minutes, how many years will it take you? How many years will it take you to actually develop a deep relationship with someone where they know you and you know them? And I know some people are like, but that's not why I come to church. Okay. That's fine. But that's why God says he's called us together as a church. I come to church so I can, I can get some good advice, you know, sing a little, see some of my friends, and then go my, go, go my, go my way. That's why I come to church. Fine. That's why you come to church. But you'll never be the church. You will always be someone who comes to church. You'll never be the church until you say no. God has called us to be united in such a way that we know each other. The second thing he says is, false teachers will be known by their fruit. And by fruit, he doesn't mean numbers. If that was the case, then, then there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of, lot of teachers, false teachers that we've called false that we need to apologize to. One of the most popular preachers in America preached this morning in Houston, Texas. This wouldn't even, the gathering here, we wouldn't even be one of his small Sunday school classes. If size of church, if number of people who buy someone's books, if number of speaking engagements is a sign of truth, you guys need to go listen to him and stop listening to me. That's what you need to do. But that's not the truth. It's not about numbers. It's not about numbers. It's about the quality of the people who follow. It's about the quality of the community. It's about their desire and are they willing to go on this journey. Even if we go, look, man, we're a bunch of introverts. You know, we're a bunch of introverts and, you know, we, we, we know that, but we know Christ has changed us. He's called us to be this community. And so we're going to go on the journey of introverts to become a community. Fine. Let's do that, right? That's healthy. What's not healthy is to say, I'm an introvert, so I'm just going to be an introvert, and that's all I'm going to be, because that's something Jesus can't change. How can Jesus be Lord of your life? If you say, this is who I am, I am closed off, I am private, I am secret. I'm called to be the community. Jesus had tens of thousands. Remember, during the height of Jesus mania, people would run, thousands of people would, would run around the Sea of Galilee. Oh, Jesus is going to be over there. They'd run there. They would, they'd be screaming. They would want to get push up front, be right there. And yet, at the cross, there's only one guy and then a handful of women. And one of them is his mom who kind of had to be there because she's mom. Even after he, he comes back, even after he resurrects, even after he appears, one of the remarkable things is when you read in 1 Corinthians, it says he appeared to more than 500. Even though all of that happened, still in Jerusalem, there's not 500. There's 120. 
500 people saw him. 380 people, more than 380 people saw the resurrected Jesus. And it wasn't enough for them to gather and wait and be obedient. Ah, but Jesus took those 120, not the tens of thousands. He took the 120, not the 500 plus. He took the 120 and he changed the world. Why? Because they got it. They got that it's not just about personal salvation. It's about truth, being a community of truth, and a community that's in love with God and in love with each other. Change the world. You can draw numbers. You can entertain. You can be popular. And by the way, I am not against that. If God wants to fill this place, if we have 10 services and there's 10,000 people at this church, I'd be all right with it. I'd probably lose my hair, but I would be all right with it. If we are 10,000 people committed to being a healthy church, I don't care if there's four or five people here, and I don't care about any number in between, are we committed to being a healthy church? And part of that means being people of truth. Healthy, healthy disciples produce healthy disciples. Jesus is building on this thing that says, that like begets like. And that's something that is taught throughout all of the Bible. Apple trees have apples. Dogs have puppies. Cats have kittens. Healthy disciples produce healthy disciples. What is a healthy disciple? Again, we've talked about this before. We've said healthy is their, their kingdom focused. They're people who who care about truth, they constantly learn not just to acquire knowledge, but so that God's Spirit will take that knowledge and help them become more like Christ. Healthy churches produce kingdom fruit. We want to learn, grow, become more like Jesus. We are marked by, by God's abundant love and His holiness, but also this deep desire to reconcile and always develop stronger relationships. Healthy disciples don't try to duplicate themselves. Healthy disciples try to duplicate Christ. And just saying those words makes you realize how impossible the task is on our own. We have to have Jesus. And finally, Jesus says there at the end, what is a diseased tree? What should we do with them? They could be cut down and thrown into the fire. I don't necessarily, Jesus is thinking, Jesus is picturing hell right here, but his big picture is just simply saying this, that we shouldn't allow false teachers to, to, to influence and to disciple others in the church. They can teach outside. They can have a podcast. That's their thing. But in the church, we need to guard against false teachers, false prophets, but we also need to then think that we should do everything we can to avoid becoming one ourselves. And part of that just comes from just learning to, to rightly study God's word. 
It doesn't take a genius to be able to apply the proper methods of studying God's Word. But really, that was never meant to be an individual endeavor anyways. It was all of us together. All of us together. Studying God's Word together. Learning together. See, healthy churches continuously seek to understand truth. You have truth. The Bible says Jesus is the truth. But we seek to understand truth. We don't just say, I want just enough truth. I want enough truth to get by. If we're really disciples, we hunger for truth. We can never get enough. 